You're listening to Life, Death and Sport, the podcast that reveals sports rarely told stories of heartbreak, healing and hope, shining a light on the real and raw issues that are so often kept in the dark. Hosted by Robbie Cornthwaite. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Life, Death and Sport. I first heard about today's guest only a few months ago when I reached out to him to do a story for Channel 7 News here in Adelaide. After interviewing him and hearing more about his incredible journey, I just knew I had to tell his story in more detail. Josh Green was a regular Aussie kid who loved to play Aussie rules football, but a family tragedy and his own personal battles took him on a completely new path. Now in America, he's on the cusp of reaching one of the world's biggest sporting leagues, not before he features on one of Netflix's most popular documentary series, Last Chance You. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Josh Green to Life, Death and Sport all the way from Oakland in California, United States of America. You're the first international guest on the show. Josh, how are you going, mate? I'm going well, mate. How are you? Yeah, no, doing really, really well. It's um, At the time of recording, it's Sunday morning here, 8 a.m. for me, and it's 3.30 in the afternoon there for you. So this is something new. Um, I'm excited about this, mate, because your story is one that I think um, people really, really do need to hear. But I mean, as I mentioned, you're over there in the States. What's it like living in America at the moment? We see a lot in the media about politics and and Black Lives Matter and the coronavirus and all these kind of things. How's your experience for you uh, living in the States? Um, Yeah, well, it's been actually, it's been pretty crazy because, you know, um, it's been good to see, you know, especially the protests and stuff, the the peaceful protests. I, I have a lot of friends who have been to those protests and I was more on the cautious side of the virus. I, uh, I'm aware that that's a very real thing and I've tried to um, stay indoors but I've been you know vocal on social media and um, trying to show my support that way and I have some uh, you know, a lot of friends on the team uh, at Laney that you know I'm in touch with every day and I make sure that they're all right and check in with them and those are kind of my main people you know I like to make sure that I'm touching base personally with people who may be affected um but yeah, look, it is uh, it is a little bit of a crazy time over here. You know that it's weird because you know actually the other day I saw that Victoria started getting a lot more cases of the yeah. coronavirus, and um, they were like, "Oh, it was you know 300 overnight or something," and everyone was freaking out. And I was like, "Holy crap! If we had 300 cases over here overnight, we'd be like, this is amazing. We're we're COVID free." Yeah. But you know, yeah, and it's just completely different, man. You know, like over here, you've got thousands and thousands and thousands every single day um, getting the virus, and um, lots of you know things like that going on. Obviously, the Black Lives Matters protests they've slowed down now. But um, look, actually, you've called me on the fourth of July, so yeah. Um, you know, there's been some there's been some stuff going on here too. But um, I've I've been indoors. I'm I'm packing at the moment, so I'm, I'm getting ready to go off to college, and um, I've been uh, pretty busy with that. And uh, but yeah, man, it's uh, it's a crazy time. Uh, I mean, we'll get to those reasons why you're in college over there, and I'm sure there's some people that that already know. You mentioned the fourth of July. Previously, you probably would have been off to a massive uh, party, fireworks display, something a little bit different planned for tonight. <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, uh, I uh, I will probably talk a bit about this a little bit later in in the podcast, but you know I haven't had a sip of alcohol in almost two years now, um, Good or, for you. or even partied, or I haven't been to a party in a long, long time. Um, you know, I, I'm very quite focused on what I'm doing over here, and I think um, tonight, you know, tonight's just going to be a normal night. I'll be uh, drinking water and uh, you know chucking on the tv and uh i don't know what we'll watch tonight 
Still yeah, to be still something. to be decided. <laughs> still to be decided, exactly, right? So yeah, it's nothing too fun over here. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get a workout in or something. Good on you. Hey, um, we we want to rewind the clock uh, back to when you were living in Adelaide. Um, you are an Adelaide boy, and like most Australians, you grew up with a with a Sharon in your hands. You were you're a pretty modest guy, from what I can gather, and, and the chats that we've had in the past. Um, how good were you at footy? Because you were playing uh, in the local competition for a couple of sides. You were you're sort of in the youth side and the juniors at, at West Adelaide and SNF, SANFL club here, if I can spit that out. Um, <laughs> and some of your, you know, the things that I read about you, uh, you know, obviously you were an incredible athlete and, and at some point you probably would have played in the SANFL. Do you think you, you, um, could, yeah. have, you could have had a career um, potentially in the AFL? I think looking, you know... Um, being honest, you know, looking back, I think if I was mentally there that I probably had a shot. Um, I, I think, you know, from growing up playing footy, um, probably the worst thing that ever happened was when I was eight years old, my dad, I love my dad, but he put me, uh, he took me out to Broadview Football Club, which is the first football club I played for, and um, he put me in the under 10s and I was eight years old. So I was playing against guys who were two years older than me. One of my teammates was, uh, Mitch Harvey, actually. He, he ended up playing for Port Adelaide for a couple of years. And, um, I, I saw his name pop up on my Instagram last night. So that reminded me, but, um, I remember that I really struggled and I remember getting hit a few times and I always was kind of timid of getting hit because I was getting hit by guys two years older than me. And I was, um, I wasn't the biggest kid. Um, and then go, going through juniors, I was always kind of timid of getting hit and um, taking those big knocks. And uh, as I started to get comfortable with that, and I was always just skinny, you know, I always struggled with that. So um, I was lucky enough to get better and adapt and, and, and make the North Adelaide development squad when I was 13. So I started off um, in SNFL clubs going through North Adelaide. And yep. the first two years I did pretty decent, you know, I had a pretty good run there. And then my under 15s year, um, the coach really didn't like that. I was a little bit timid, you know, I second guess sometimes I went in, I wasn't strong, you know, I was pretty weak. I was about 60 kilo, uh, six, about six, nearly six foot tall at that age. And, um, you know, I was really, I was, wasn't that quick. I was more of an endurance guy. Um, and he kind of said to me, he's like, listen, you know, you either got to bulk up or you got to, you know, learn how to hit people or you, you got to get faster or something. You know, I, I remember I messaged my under-13s coach and I said, listen, mate, like I'm, I'm thinking of um, maybe taking a year off or two and um, maybe putting on some weight, putting on some size, and maybe getting a little bit faster, a little bit stronger. And he said to me, yeah, you know, it's a credit to you that you realise, and I still have this message on my phone, that you realise that you're not fast enough and you're not strong enough to play at this level of football. Um, but you're a great kid, you're a great man, and, you know, I think that you've got the skills to be a really great footballer. And um, around that time, my mum was competing in bodybuilding as an amateur, um, doing, like, fitness competitions and stuff. So she was going to the gym every day, and she was waking up for uh, 5.30 a.m. sessions with her trainer. So at 5 a.m., I would run out the door and say, mom, I'm coming with you. You know, I'm, I'm coming to the gym. I'm trying to get bigger. And I'd watch what she would do and I'd copy her. And I think that's when my relationship with my mom, I've always had a really close relationship with her. I think that's when it really got really big for me. Like I really admired her and saw how hard she worked, how she dieted, how she trained, 
how she worked. You know, she was working nine until nine lots of days. Um, but then she would also find hours and hours to work out. She just prioritised it. So I'd work out in the mornings and I'd go to school and then I'd, I'd work out again. I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I did that for two years. You know, I, I was still playing a little bit of basketball and I was playing like school football. So, yeah, look, I went back to football a couple of years later and um, I, I went to West Adelaide. I um, was living near there at the time. And I thought, you know, I didn't really want to travel all the way back out to Prospect where North Adelaide was. And um, I went back out and um, at the time, after doing all the training I had done, watching my mum, waking up early, doing all that stuff, I, I went from like, I didn't even place at like sports day for the 100 metre race. Then I went from that to finishing third in like the carnival where all the schools come together. I, I got a lot faster. I got a lot stronger. Um, we did like a strength testing. It was all body weight stuff. It was pull-ups, um, underhand pull-ups, uh, push-ups, and uh, there was uh, dips, like body weight dips. And it was all in comparison to your body weight. So, you know, if you got 20 reps but you were 80 kilo, which I think I was about 83, so I put on over 20, that a year yeah. and a half, I put on over 20 kilo. And like, I was working really hard. Like It was un- like I still look back on that and I'm like, holy crap, you know, like I'm not – I don't need to be that dedicated to as I was then um, because, like, I was just playing catch-up. But I was just nonstop. Like, it was an insane work ethic that, you know, uh, like hours and hours a day. So I just came back in some really great shape. And, um, yeah, look, I basically we did those tests. And, you know, between – so me with – it was, again, equivalent. So if you do 80 kilo – if you're 80 kilo and you do 20 reps, it's worth more than if you're, you know, 70 kilo yeah. and you do 20 reps. So um, I finished first in every single strength test, and the right. difference between me and second was the same as second to last, and that's how far ahead ahead I was from from second in in the strength test. So um, I was a lot stronger, I was a lot faster, and I was fit too. Um, I was always running, so I think I finished uh, top 10, maybe top 5 in the fitness as well. So I did come in back in really good shape, but look, mentally I was really not there. You know, I was really struggling. I really didn't believe in myself at the time. I was, um, I'd say, struggling for love and affection, uh, maybe not necessarily from home, um, but just, yeah, just having a really bad time. You know, I, I had good friends, but I was always looking for more, uh, you know, um, I had great family, but you know, my parents had separated when I was 13 when I first started playing football. And, you know, my dad just found a girlfriend and my mum just had a boyfriend and I was kind of felt like I was in the middle. So I, I was just struggling with things at home and um, I never really felt like mentally I, I, I believed in myself. And I look back and I think I had all the tools. And if I just believed, you know, if I just believed that I could have went and got that ball, if I just believed that. Um, I was good enough. I think I really could have had a crack, you know, if I look back and I think about my mentality now and how I approach things and, and what I've done here in America. And I think, you know, I, I really could have done something there, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of what ifs. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think it happened for a reason. I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm here now. And um, I think I needed to take those losses then and experience those things then to, to experience what I'm experiencing now. Yeah. I think you're hundred percent right. I think, um, you know, maybe things would have gone well for you had your mentality been different, but it's led you down a, a different path and it's it's an exciting one. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to chatting about that soon. But 
a little while after after this testing and, and things like that, you spoke about your mum there. What a massive role she played in in you getting such a head start at, at that age group. A little while after that, you started to notice uh, a few things were maybe a little bit different um, with your mum and and a little bit concerning. Can you maybe talk about some of the things that you saw in her behaviour and 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 what eventually it led to? Yeah, well, for about a year there. Um, you know, I noticed that she was really attached to her phone, like really attached to her phone. And that, um, that was one of the first signs. It was weird because you think everyone's attached to their phone these days, but it was like she was never off her phone. And I wasn't sure if it was just she was like addicted to it or what was going on there. But, you know, she wasn't going to the gym as much. She would suffered a back injury and she was always on the phone and like on her phone, like messaging or on Instagram or scrolling through and then she was at work so her and I weren't really spending as much time together and like I said she was kind of everything to me and I felt like in a way that I was nearly everything to her obviously she had partners and she had my brother as well Um, but you know I felt like I was getting you know at 16 17 no attention at all and I was kind of it was just a little bit weird and um, that was kind of like the first things that started to happen and then she started saying things like oh do you have practice on Saturday? And I was like, no, it's on Tuesday. And she said, yes, Saturday. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I said Tuesday, mum. And she but like, no, yeah, yes, yeah, Saturday. And I could tell that she was trying to say Tuesday, but she was saying Saturday. And that was, I was like, oh, man. And I remember going. Was, was that was that uh, really, really scary to, to, yeah, to see that? Her, it wa- yeah. It was, but, you know, at the time I just thought she was tired. You know, I just thought she was stressed. I thought, um Look, like I said, when you're, especially at my age, I was 16, 17, uh, I just thought she didn't care almost, you know, I, it was, it was weird because you didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. I, I just thought, oh, and we were fighting too because she was always on her phone. Um, so when she, you know, we we're fighting or arguing, um, we weren't having a very good time at home. And then when she would, you know, stutter on things at the start, I was like, oh, she just doesn't care. And then... I remember that that specific moment when she did that, where she said Saturday, and she kept saying Saturday. I called up my dad and I said, "Mum's not right." I said, "You know, we gotta. She's gonna get checked out. Like, I'm really worried about her. You know, I, I've known like we've been fighting and stuff, but I think there's more to this. You know, I don't think this is. I don't think this is her. You know, I think there's something really wrong, and I, I think we need to get her checked up. Um, and it just kind of kept happening. There were still little small things, and. I just, I was just having conversations and it just wasn't processing. She would, it was like talking to, you know, like a 90 year old um, who would, would be forgetful. Mm. And um, then I, I started really getting worried and um, I was, you know, like I said, talking to my dad, talking to the people around me saying, I don't think my mum's right. And I kept, I started to tell her that, you know, I pulled her aside and said, there's something wrong. You know, this, this is not right. And How did she, she react? Was like, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, she was like, no, no, I'm fine. You know, she's like, no, I'm, I'm just stressed. You know, I've just got headaches. I've, I've seen the doctor. You know, she would say, like, I've seen the doctor and she had. Um, that, this is the scary thing and this is what breaks my heart a little bit. This had been going on for two years um, and the, we found out the cancer had been going on for three. But at the start, it was just presenting as, like, really light headaches. So she went to the doctors and they were just like, oh, it's just a headache. You know, you're just stressed. Like, look at what you're doing. You know, she was struggling. She was working nine till nine trying to provide. Um, obviously, divorce is terrible for everyone. So my parents just got a divorce and, you know, 
they went half half and then you know she was investing money in some things and it wasn't working out and you know things weren't going as well as we would have liked um and yeah look it's just it just got really bad you know um uh, i just there was just a while there where i, I remember i was going to school and I said, Mum, you know, I need I need money to buy something for lunch. And she had ten dollars in her wallet. She said, This is all I got when I go to work. You know, um, I'm going to make that money back. And it was just times like that. Like everything we had was either mortgaged or you know, cars were loaned, and it was just like, you know, really really tough. To see so to every, see someone yeah. who was super fit, super motivated, super dedicated, bodybuilding, as you say, helped you out. To see her change so quickly and become maybe someone that wasn't the person you knew, how, how difficult was that for you? It was very, very difficult. Um, I was very close to my mum and, you know, I love my dad and I know he's probably going to listen to this and you know, he's he's done so much for me, especially over here and when I was back home. He's, he's one of the best people I know. Um but, you know, I was drawn to my mum when they divorced and I was always with my mum. I didn't see my dad a lot. And um, I definitely, you know, they say kids should, you know, see their mum and dad the same amount, but I sided with my mum. And, I, you know, I was 12, 13. I just, it was just one of those things. And I sided with my mum and I was always with her. So when I stopped feeling that love from her, I wasn't looking for it from my dad. And my friends can give me the love that your mum could give. Then I started looking for it in like girls because I was 17, 16 and I wasn't getting that from there. No one, I just wasn't, you know, successful in that area at the time. And, um, I just wasn't getting any love. So that's where my depression started. It was really, really bad. Um, I fell into major depression at that time. Um, and then when my mum eventually got sick or we eventually found out she got sick, um, that's what it really spiraled. So explain to us maybe how you found out exactly what was wrong with your mum and, and what was the diagnosis? So um, it was actually, so it was her 50th birthday, uh, May 14th, and we had organised for my brother who wasn't living with her. And I actually wasn't living with her at the time. I was or I was living with her and my dad. Uh, I started to kind of go back and forth because, I said, like I said, she was getting really... Uh, really strange, not strange, but, you know, like she was struggling with what was going on and we were trying to, we were fighting and things like that. And um, we organised to go for lunch with my brother and her best friend, Teresa, um, one of her best friends, I should say. And um, it was the 17th of May. And one of the weird things was, you know, since I was maybe eight, she would say, I don't ever want to turn 50. You know, I hate 50. Like, I'm so close to 50. Like, I'm getting close to 50. Every every birthday, I was like, oh, 50 is approaching, you know. And, you know, three days after her 50th birthday, you know, we're here and she just started, um, she drove my brother to her apartment and she started crying. And well, I was like, what, what's wrong? And Teresa, her friend, was like, what's going on? And she's like, I can't think straight. I was just driving Costa, it was my brother, and, you know, I couldn't see anything. I could barely see the road. All the cars were blurry. Um, I'm, I can't say sentences right, blah, blah, blah. Like the whole, she kind of gave us the whole spill about what was going on. And um, we went, Teresa went, we got to take you to the hospital. I was like, yeah, could take you to the hospital, you know, like, gee, like, this is, I mean, you know, like, this is crazy, you know, like, she is, 
you know, just kind of spiraling down, like getting worse and worse and worse. And um, we took her into the hospital. And this is a another kind of crazy story about what happened. Um, her one of her best friends and Teresa's bestest bestest friend John worked at the hospital. And when my mum first got there, they thought she was just drunk because of the way that she was acting. She was very kind of like wobbly on her feet. She was hysterical. She was um, stuttering her words, stuttering her sentences. And they thought, oh, you know, this, this lady's just drunk. And he, he went, no, like, Vanessa doesn't drink. She's not like that. You've got to give her a CAT scan right now. And I don't think, you know, we, we, we say to this day, we don't think they would have given her a CAT scan if he wasn't there. And they gave her a CAT scan and they, and they saw something. And then they gave her an MRI and they found uh, a brain tumour. So they, they came into the room. And this is a story I'll tell a lot of people because this is a story that really impacted me incredibly. Um, we were outside and there was a bunch of people there, some of mum's best friends, uh, a part, one of her partners. And, um they said, listen, Josh, uh, you've got to be strong for your mum here. You know, she's, uh, this might not be good news. Um, what, what they're about to say could be really terrible. And you can't show your mum that, you know, she might be passing away. You've got to be really strong for her here and, you know, come, you know, do what you got to do. And I said, yeah, yeah, 100%, no worries. And we get into the room and we're all standing there. We're all gathered around her and the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, you've got stage four glycosemia i can't even say the word so i'll never say i just say stage four brain cancer and um yeah we everyone everyone broke down and um they didn't they didn't mention she has six months to live but all of us had kind of done our research on different cancers and what they were about and how long she probably had. They ended up telling us later that day anyway, but everyone broke down. Everyone was crying. Everyone was hysterical. And I hadn't started crying yet. I was just looking at my mum, and I saw my mum looking around, and she wasn't crying because of what the doctor just said. She was crying because everyone else was crying. She didn't understand what they just told her. Yeah. And she was just looking at everyone, judging their emotions. And she looked around and she was crying and I could see she was panicking. And she looked at me and I looked her dead in the eye and showed no emotion. And I nodded at her like, this is all right. And she, she looked at me and she was kind of like, she was freaked out by it. Why is Josh not crying? Why is everyone crying around me? And I saw her emotions got a little bit better by just seeing me do that. Yeah. And when everyone left the room, she pulled me back in or I went back in and she said, why didn't you cry? And I said, because I know you're going to be all right. Yeah, I know everything's going to be okay here. You know, we're, we're going to be fine. We're going to push through this. You're going to be absolutely fine. You know, this is, you've conquered so many things in your life. This is just another thing. This, you're going to be completely fine. People are crying because they're worried, but you're going to be completely fine. She, you know, she didn't understand what was going on. And I felt like me not showing emotion and me supporting her in that way was, was what was best. Uh, it's something that we probably will talk about later on is that that was the worst thing I could have done because every time I saw my mama held in emotions and depression really kicked in because I was unable to express how I really felt. And there were times where, you know, during my mom's sickness where 
we went to a restaurant and she pissed and she peed herself. Uh, and I, I had to hold it together and I had to help her, you know, and it was like no emotion. And I'm just, hey, you're going to be fine. You know, we're going to get through this, you know. I remember saying something like, you know, like I pee myself too. Like we're going to be fine. You know, it's it's just things like that. And um, I just never showed emotion. And then I'd go home and I'd cry and I'd cry and I'd cry. And then I'd have to, you know, um, build up the courage to go see her again yeah. um, or go spend time with her. And that was not the way to do it. You know, I needed to be, and, and it's tough because I was so young, but I would have loved to have spent more and more time with her and be able to let those emotions out, to be able to talk to her through those times and to be able to just be emotional, you know, because I wasn't emotional and that was was really, really tough for me. I think it's great that, in hindsight, you can look back and say maybe you would have done things different. But, you know, at 16, 17, when everyone's just giving you this big talk and, and told you that's what you need to do, um, you know, you did what they told you to do. So I wouldn't, uh, if I was you, please don't be too hard on yourself. And again, I say it every podcast. The reason I do these podcasts is to tell these stories and to tell people that there's no right or wrong way to feel. And however you deal with it, whatever you choose to do at the time, is your decision. There's no playbook on how these things are meant to be handled. Um, of course, people can give advice, but um, you know, you were just 16, 17 years old and you were carrying such an incredible, um, I won't say burden, but you were dealing with something extremely emotional. And you know, we do say, I, I'm a super emotional guy. Like I've got already got tears in my eyes now. So I've never had a problem letting out my feelings. But you know, for you, Getting that news, um, obviously the the next sort of six months that took place, dealing with uh, depression yourself, what were those six months like for you? Um, yeah, so um, those – we, oh, luckily I'll say that my mum really, really fought and she ended up living – um, 12 more months and something that I was super proud of her about because especially those last three months I saw how hard that was for her um, she really 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 pushed and she really wanted to be alive and um, look it got bad my that year got really bad for me there were so many things going on besides my mum just being sick um, there were things that I still don't talk about which were going on with um, people on mum's side, she had like a, uh, like a boyfriend and families and friends on that side, which I just don't talk about because um, there was some stuff that went on there that wasn't too nice and not just towards me but towards my brother and towards some people in my family and that was not very nice either. There was just um, – when, when something like this happens, when someone gets sick, everyone's emotions are right at the top and everyone has – a certain way they want to do things. You know, some, some people wanted my mum to go through chemotherapy and other people wanted my mum to go through natural, you know, drink your juices, don't do chemotherapy. And there was two sides and everyone was button heads. And for me, I was just, I'm like, listen, this is the one with all those things that were going on. Somehow I, I ended up in the middle, but I would, I'd call up my brother or I'd call up my grandma, my mum's mum and just say, Hey, listen, you know, um, I'm going to be 17 right now. I'm going to be 18 right now. And if you guys can deal with it and if you guys can do what you got to do, you guys do that. And, and I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to be her son. You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to deal with any of the other stuff that's going on. Um, you know, I just want to be there for her and, and, and as much as I can. And yeah, look, um, 
my my depression was um, it's tough to talk about you know I um, when my mum got sick she was in she was at hosp- in hospital and then um, I started I was living with my dad I started living with my dad and I had a bit of a fight with him and I had a fight with um, his now wife who look again I love them both now um, but at the time we had a fight and I moved to my nan's house and I was living where my nan would live but my nan would stay at her boyfriend's place like she basically lived there and just had this house so I was staying there and I was one night like I wasn't working I had no money I wasn't going to school I wasn't playing sport anymore. I gave up on anything, everything. I was sad about my mum. And this one night, I just was hungry. I was, everything was going on. And I started thinking about if I really wanted to be alive. And I started thinking about kind of how I would take my life if I wanted to take my life. I started thinking about... Um, just not wanting to do it, not wanting to see my mum die, not wanting to see her keep declining. I didn't want to not play in the AFL. I didn't want to not finish high school. I didn't want to not do all these things that I was doing at the time. Um, and I remember I, I've had all these thoughts and I walked out the house and I got into my car, which was my nan's old car, and I started driving and I was driving towards some hills and I was pretty much planning to, you know, I was, wasn't planning to do anything nice. I, was, I wasn't, didn't want to be alive anymore. And I was driving and I started thinking, oh, man, if you want to go, if you want to pass, if you don't want to live anymore, do it when your mum's gone. Just hang in there 10 more months, 9 more months, 8 more months, 3 more months, however long it is. Just hang in there. And when she goes, you can go too. You know, when, as soon as she passed away, you can go the next day. I don't care. There was something in me that said, you've got to be here until your mum passes. Don't put this on your mum. Don't do this to your mum. And I drove. So I turned around. I drove back. And that night, my nan came home. Or it was in the morning. My nan came home and I told her what had happened. And she took me straight to the hospital and... I told the people there, and then they sent me to some uh, mental facility. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's a mental facility, but it's a place where people who are on watch go. And I was there for about a week. And my auntie came on my dad's side, and she said, "How would you like like a place to live, a, a place like a, a stable home?" And um, yeah, it's me and. Your uncle, your uncle Chris, and the two kids there, and um, you know, I thought it was like a charity thing. You know, I was like, I don't want to be that kid that he just wanted to go, and these people were just giving me a house to stay because I'm. They feel sorry for me, and um, I was hesitant, but I saw it as a, as an opportunity because I hadn't felt love for so long, um, and I um. I moved in with them and it was meant to be a two-week thing and it turned into three years and um, they uh, 
they're probably, you know, the sole reason I'm here. Um, they were there for me in, in, in the toughest time possible and they gave me a place to live. And through that time that she was sick, I always had people to talk to. I had, there was two beautiful kids, Taya and Wade, who are my little cousins who are like a sister and brother to me, who I felt an example for or as an older brother to them. So I felt I had to keep myself to a standard and I found love in being a brother to them and love in being a family member to Robin and Chris. And that's ultimately what kept me alive. Um, and I think if it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't be alive right now. So. Well, I'm really glad that uh, you, you had a, some loving family members who helped you turn things around, help you see what value you have in life and, um, and you're destined for great things. Lastly, um, before we move on to, to all the good things that, that are happening for you at the moment, <laughs> were you there when your mum passed away? And, you know, a lot of people, you know, go through those sort of things. Was it a moment of love and beauty and, and all the things you hope it was? Um, that, yeah, look, the, the night she passed away was really difficult. Um, I'd gone into the hospital and um, the doctor said, you know, she's starting to breathe heavy. Um, she's starting to really struggle. Um, we think that normally when something like this happens, they've got 24 hours to live. And, um, you know, people were kind of coming into the room and she was at a stage where she couldn't move anything. She could only move one eyelid and people were trying to say they could not not goodbyes, but, you know, seeing her. And I remember walking in the room and I said, hi, hi mum. And for the first time that day, I saw her eyelid open and she was listening to me and she moved her finger. And I went, fuck, you know, what do I do, you know? And I was told that when you're told that she's about to pass away, you've got to let her know that it's okay and that you're going to be all right. And if she passes away that um, you're going to be fine and that she's going to be fine too. And, you know, it's, it's weird because mum and I both love Muhammad Ali. We absolutely loved him. And um, she, his biggest fight, I think it was against Sonny Listed, was a few days after my mum was born. And a few days before my mum passed, he passed away. And I had read an article about his daughter reading this letter to him, letting him free letting him go and i was in this in the spot where i had to do the same thing um and i i told my mum that i was going to be okay um whether i believed it or not and that she was going to be fine and that i loved her and that you know god was going to look after her and she's going to be safe in heaven i um kind of talked to talk to her and, and let her know that it was okay and um i left the hospital and um, I left at 10 p.m. And I was going to sleep there the night, but I remember someone saying, hey, look, you know, just come back in the morning, you know, you'll be okay. You know, just this is probably something that you, you know, come back in the morning and if she's still alive, say goodbyes. And I said, all right, yeah, I think that's probably best. Um, and then at 1.30 a.m., I got a phone call from my brother saying she had passed. Um, 
so that was terrible because I, I, I wanted to be there. Um, but, you know, I felt like she would be there in the morning. Um, and one thirty, I probably would have been asleep too. Um, and, yeah, I, I got there and I got to say my goodbyes again. I, I saw her laying there, which is still one of the worst moments of my life. Um, but, yeah, that was, um, uh, like I said, unfortunately I wasn't there to see, not that you want to see it because yeah. it's terrible, but to be there for her when she passed. Um, well, unfortunately I wasn't there. I think for a 17-year-old kid, I think you've you showed incredible strength and, yeah, everything that you guys went through, I think most people listening to this podcast would say for a 17-year-old, um, you showed incredible strength and, and supported your mum right till the end. She would be very, very proud of you. Thank you. Moving, moving on to to sport, it's not, it's not so much, you know, that's a... I really want to thank you before we do move on for sharing your story because it's uh, obviously very emotional and, uh, you know, everything you went through personally as well, I think uh, it just shows you know, what we're about to talk about, how you can come out the other side and, and how you can not turn your life around, but how things can change. After your mum passed away, I think it was in, in May 2016 or June 2016, sorry. Um, yeah. You didn't really want to go back to playing footy. Um, footy was a game where you probably had too much time on the field uh, to think and you wanted something a little bit more fast-paced. The other, the other thing with, with footy is you don't really get an opportunity to travel and to see the world. And you decided that maybe basketball was your avenue to, to get over to America and you started playing basketball here in Adelaide. And through a few different friends, a few different uh, contacts, you ended up getting yourself a, a deal in, in the college system in America. Um, you headed over and unfortunately for you, once you got over there, the coach that, that brought you um, moved on pretty quickly and, and I think you picked up an injury and, and, and things were difficult for you. Uh, with everything you'd just gone through, once you were in America, did that sort of mental strength come from what you'd gone through and you thought, you know what, I'm going to stick it out here a bit longer? Yeah, look, I... Um... If I'm being completely honest, you know, I was um, between those those times. I was still I was on my antidepressants. Um, I was still going through uh, really bad depression. I was, um, you know, drinking still. Um, which is, I, look, I don't think drinking is a bad thing. But when you're depressed um, and you're doing it enough that it affects you, it's, it is can be quite bad, especially when you're mixing it with antidepressants like I was and anxiety medication, and. Um, you know, I was still doing things. I wasn't fully committed. Um, I still was trying to have fun. I was still trying to kind of get over what had happened at home. And um, after, so the whole thing that happened with basketball, you know, I, I actually came over and I really struggled to fit in at the start. Um, I actually had some good friends in the basketball team, but there were, you know, some people at the college who, like I was friendly with everyone, but I just didn't really fit in. I didn't really feel like um, I belonged. And um, I had some Australian buddies who I was living with and, I, I love them. They were absolutely great people, and I got along with them very well. But it was it was a very small circle, and um, I felt a little bit isolated at times. And the new coach that came in, I didn't see eye to eye with him. Like I, he just wasn't supportive at all. You know, he didn't really understand that 
especially for us four Australians that we were absolutely new to the country. He didn't really help us at all. He just said, you know, find your own feet. And, I mean, it was fine because I was a bit older and um, I was able to find my own feet, but um, he just wasn't a great coach. And I thought um, he just he didn't care. And I, think, I don't think he was a bad person. I just don't think he cared. Um, and... Um, yeah, look, I was training for basketball and I, I injured my foot really quite badly. I had a severe contusion and every time I'd walk on my foot, it was like it was like agony. And um, it was the first time I've actually been injured. I haven't really ever been sidelined for more than a week. Uh, this one, uh, they said you got eight weeks off and then um, if I was to stay the full eight weeks, then basically the season was almost over. Uh, I think it was a 14-week season, so I was going to miss more than half the year. So I tried to come back after six weeks, and I redid it. So then I was looking at the full season. Um, so, like, that had happened, um, and I kind of wasn't fitting in, and I was still taking my antidepressants. I was still drinking. I was still partying. I was still doing things that probably just, you know, I was being a kid, you know, um, and... I fell into a hole again, like a really, really big hole. And, um, you know, I had a, uh, an incident where I kind of just, uh, I just say, like, I, I wouldn't say it was as bad as the first one, but I just didn't feel, you know, good. You know, I, I didn't want to, like, take my life, but I just didn't want to be there. Um, and I kind of fell into that hole. And that, that night that that happened um, and I started thinking those things again and feeling that way, like seriously feeling a certain type of way, I, I kind of um, I slept on it and I, I spoke to my buddy there, Mitch, um, who I was living with, and I kind of told him what had happened and how I was feeling. And we, we discussed it. And uh, I can't thank him enough. He was so awesome. You know, he's, he's going to be one of my best friends for life. Um, that was a, a, a terrible time. And he was really someone that really like, helped. You know, I I, um, I never got to the stage I was the first time because I had someone like him who was actually right there in, in a room next to me. And, you know, that was awesome. And um, when that was going on, um, you know, I just went, geez, I've got to do something. You know, I've, I've either got to go home or I've got to try something completely new. And I used to joke about playing American football with my uncle. We were watching Last Chance You, actually, yep. which is a, another funny thing. We are watching Last Chance You, and I said to him, I think I could do this. And, um, you know, I, I went, yeah, let's, let's try um, American football. I think I told you the story about, you know, all us basketballs, we went to the beach and um, I was punting the ball on the beach and I was tackling guys. I was running with it and I'm like, dude, you're, you're you're better at American football than basketball and you've never played this in your life. And I, I, I don't know. I was like, I was like, I don't know about that. You know, um, I was playing against basketballers, you know, I imagine actually going up against uh, real 220 pounders, 250 pounders. I'm, I'm going against, you know, scorny guys. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, I basically, yeah, like I dry emailed some schools after a few conversations and just a few guys kind of saying, yeah, you know, give it a crack and it was mostly the americans that were saying hey give this a shot you could do this um because when i when i spoke back home it was like i was crazy yeah um it, everyone thought i was crazy i i you wouldn't believe the doubt i got and the messages i got um i remember announcing it on facebook and i the amount of private messages i got just like you you dumb like you know like, you're crazy <laughs> like what are you what are you doing like you're trying this completely new sport and i remember you know, um, obviously I spoke about my auntie and my uncle and what they did for me. And I, 
I value their opinion so much. And I remember calling them up and saying, I want to try American football. And I, they're always supportive, but you can hear it in their voice when you think it's a bad idea. <laughs> and I heard that concern in their voice. And I heard that, oh, you know, why don't you just play basketball, you know? And maybe they're all right. And, you know, like, you know, it's, uh, it did sound pretty outrageous at the start. Um, and what kind of happened was, luckily, my dad was coming on vacation in, in April uh, last year. And I had just gotten to Laney and I hadn't officially transferred yet. I was still in contact with the basketball team and I was still like kind of reaching out to schools. And I went out to Laney and I ran the four, the, the 40 yard dash and I ran like, I did the bench presses and I caught some bowls for them and did, and, and punted some bowls for them and stuff. And, um, you know, I'd been doing it for a, a few weeks and my dad arrived and I said, you know, why don't you come up to Laney and, and meet the head coach and meet some of the coaches and maybe see if you think this is a good idea. And we went in to, and someone that you will know very, very well soon, Coach John Bean, the head coach at Laney College, um, you know, pulled us into his office and he says to my dad, I've never seen Josh play football in my life, but he has every single thing in the world to make it to the NFL. He has every single attribute, every single characteristic. I've coached 20 NFL guys in my career, and Josh has every single one of those attributes. He can play in the NFL, and if you give him this opportunity, I will help him every single step of the way. And How much confidence dad, did that give you? <laughs> I, was, I was sky high. I, I honestly, after such a short time, after a few weeks, um, I was like, yeah, look, I've got to do it. You know, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And all the doubt that was coming from back home and all the messages and even my, you know, my best friends, I love them, but you know, they were just doubting me and thinking this was a bit of a joke. And I, but I knew as soon as I stepped on Laney college, and this is a credit to them and you would get to see this in the last chance shoot, how amazing these people are. They gave me the confidence to do what I'm doing. They backed me every single day. You know, I got a call from one of the guys, uh, two days ago and he called me up and he said, Josh, I hope you know, like, you know, in two years time, you're going to be playing in the NFL. Like you, you make sure you're working hard, make sure that you're sticking to what you're doing. Those people from day dot, I hadn't played a game and were telling me you're going to play in the NFL. And that belief, you know, I hadn't had that with basketball. I hadn't had that with football back home. And for a sport that I've been doing for such a short amount of time, I was kind of, I was telling this to people back home and they were like, not be, almost not believing that these people were telling me these things. And, you know, it was like, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. And, um, well, at, yeah, at, I guess at this point, when, when they're telling you all these things, you didn't actually have a position yet, did you? You didn't know what position you were going to play. You had no idea where you were going to fit in on the field. No, nah, no. Nah. It was, uh, I, I remember the, I came in, I, I had uh, just done some punting. Um, and the story about, uh, so it was Boise State, and Fresno State, and obviously I, uh, I was very, very close with Fresno State, and um, we have a, I have a relationship there. Unfortunately, um, you know, some, some things happened on my end, and um, uh, we're, we're still. Uh, Maybe we'll leave that for another I can't day. Talk, we'll, leave this, we'll leave this for another day. But um, Fresno State were there, and Boise State were there, and it was my um, second time. It was, I told people it was my first, but technically at Laney it was my second time because the first time I had punted the special teams coordinator kind of like pulled me aside 
and he said, you know, you should do this. But it wasn't like I hadn't really been practicing. This this time I was actually we had a punk coach come out and he was coaching me for the session. And um, these these scouts were there, Boise State and Fresno, and they're big schools. They're big time schools. They're both playing in front of over thirty thousand people. Both great schools and very big, rich history. And they both came up to me and wanted to know everything about me, you know, where I come from, what I'm doing. They wanted to watch me punt. Um, they found out my 40 times. They were just they were just stunned by the whole story. Just and the quickly, more that, sorry, yeah. I, don't, I don't like cutting people no, yeah. off on these chats because I like them <laughs> to tell the story. But just quickly on those 40 times, for people that don't know, the 40-yard dash is, is one of the tests that you do in your combine or your testing. In 2020, the fastest 40-yard dash in the NFL, not in college football, in NFL was 4.2 seconds. And you were like 0.1 second behind the quickest player in yeah. the NFL. So yeah. you are officially <laughs> the fastest punter in American football. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a funny thing because uh, when that article and when everything comes out, when, when people started labeling me the fastest punter in college, a lot of, a lot of people got mad. A lot of um, a lot of us, uh, like Australian punters and a few other punters in America, they got upset and were like kind of saying things like, "Oh, but you don't you don't run when you punt and you don't do this, you don't do that." And I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, mate. But if you were the fastest punter in college, you would you would be you'd be pretty stoked too." So, I mean, it's a it's a fun thing. It's a and I, we don't use it a lot in punting, but. Um, you know, I, I, hopefully I can get on a fake and, and, and get a touchdown or something or even get a first down. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a phenomenal thing, you know. It's a, it's a weird thing to say. How, dif- uh, how different is the kicking from, from an AFL? Is it just like you're kicking a torpedo? It's pretty much, yeah. You just kick, like, Obviously the ball's different. A, yeah, the ball's a little bit different, but you can make it as simple as you want. Yeah. You, you mentioned the fact you're at Laney College. We, we should briefly mention they are the junior college champions uh, of American football at, at when you arrived. And through trial and error, you, you worked out you wanted to be a punter or you didn't, maybe you didn't want to be a punter, but that's where the best fit was for you. Initially, you thought it might be a last resort, but it turns out that's where your, your skill set was, was best suited. And as things progress, you find out, as you mentioned, that the documentary series Last Chance You will be documenting Laney College for the past season. So basically the, the season's already recorded. It goes to air on July 27, I think it is in Australia, or maybe it's in America. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll add that in the notes uh, at the bottom. For those people that haven't seen Last Chance, Last Chance You, it's phenomenal. Um, I've watched all four seasons, five seasons. Um, the, the EMCC Lions was the first three years. Buddy Stevens, the coach, larger than life character. And then again with Independence College, Coast Brown. It's very, very controversial at times. You have a lot of troubled students that are on their last chance, hence the name. Uh, what was your experience like and how did you feel the fact that your first ever season playing college football was going to be documented for millions of people around the world to watch? Yeah, as I've said uh, multiple times, I wasn't happy about it. I was uh, pretty nervous. I I, um, I didn't want any distractions. I, I was very, very focused on trying to go and play the division one level. Um, originally when I first got there, it was all about playing. And when I started punting, it was all about just um, punting and playing for the team. But as time went on, it was like a week by week thing. Like schools would reach out or, you know, I'd get phone calls from college coaches or, you know, I'd have a little bit of inspiration. I'd go, Oh, you know, now, now I probably have to think about playing division one, you know, maybe. And all these guys saying I could play in the NFL. 
so early on, I was like, maybe I think about this being a career. So um, I was very focused on that. Um, I, I know that that I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And I felt like, you know, I'd been there for two months and cameras came. I was just like, I don't want to be around them. I want to be focused. I don't want them to distract me. Um, I don't need someone following me around or following me home or anything like that. So, you know, if I'm being honest, you know, I avoided them, especially at the start at all costs. And I think that's, you know, it's going to be a large reason why I don't think I'll be seen as much as people think they'll see me. Um, I remember the first day they came on, uh, came onto the campus, were on the field, and I was punting bowls. And the the main director, head to, uh, head director Greg, um, came up to me and uh, he started talking to me. I thought, oh, uh, he, this guy's about to make me a main character. I was like, oh god, here we go. <laughs> And um, he goes, who's the guy you're kicking to? <laughs> I was like, that's Dior. <laughs> and Dior ended up being a main character. I was like, that's Dior. And he's like, who's the guy behind him? I was like, that's Damar. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. You know, he was asking me that. But then he was kind of intrigued by my accent and he saw I was punting some pretty good balls and we were talking. But I was very brief and I was never like, hey, look, I, I never came out and said, this is what happened to my mum this is my story, this is that, this is that. I was always very brief, like, I'm here, I'm trying to play Division One, and, you know, these kids are great kids. And, um, you know, I, I realised for the show, for for Netflix, when we first found out, I was driving a guy called New home, and you'll, you'll meet New in the series, he's the main character, I was driving him home, and we are having a conversation, and he said, oh, man, um, my buddy's brother just got murdered the other day. And I was like, oh, man, like, are you, are you serious? Like, you're you right? He's like, ah, oh, I guess so. He's like, murders happen all the time here, you know. Like, I've, I know, you know, a lot of guys that have been murdered, unfortunately, it's just something that, you know, we, we deal with. And I, I was like, I've never met or know anyone that has ever been murdered. And he looked at me in disbelief. And that look of disbelief when I said I don't know anyone that had been murdered was when I was like, this is – there is a bigger purpose than – me you know like the world is more rough than what i've been through there are people who have lost their life for you know just getting murdered but it's just terrible and that disbelief i saw in his eyes i was like you know there are there are people who have really really struggled and there are people here who actually have nothing absolutely nothing zero money who are who are there because if they didn't have this they would have nothing at all they would be on the street and these people are incredible people. Nothing like anyone has ever seen on Last Chance You before. Um, the head coach is an unbelievable guy. Um, and I, you know, I'll come out here and I say I love the guy. You know, I, I spoke to him the other day, and you know, I, I remember every time he hangs up the phone, he says I love you, brother. You know, he treats us like we are his family, and he is a family to me, and we are a huge family there. And what. There are definitely tough times. There are definitely times that you'll see on the show where you're like, oh, my God, like, this is Oakland. This is people like, you know, this is crazy. And, and some of the teachers and just the circumstances, the people there are unbelievable, the, the players there. And um, as, the, as the year went on, people started to find out more about my story and started to kick themselves a little bit. But I was not focused on last chance you and you know, there was some segments there or there were some interviews where I got to speak and I got to talk about my story a little bit, but it was really near the end of the season when I was having greater success, when I was um, more open about what was going on in my life, what had happened in my life. But it was very short interviews compared to the guys who 
had been getting followed around for the last seven weeks. Um, and, but it was, it was phenomenal, man. You know, the, the directors, the people there, the all great people they, they became family. Um, they, they jumped in on our team photo. Like it was, they're, they're great people. And the experience is, you know, something I never thought I would do in my life. You know, we, I am on a football team that will be on Netflix where everyone in the world can watch, um, you know, all the main characters are some of my best friends and I might even see my mug a few times, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal, man. It's, it's a very, very, uh, very grateful for it. Well, I mean, just by what you're saying there, it sounds like, sounds like you found maybe a place where you feel like you really belong, um, in terms of playing football and, and what you're doing, I suppose to wrap things up, uh, a couple, two, two, sort of two last questions. How, how are you now? Do you feel like you're in a really sort of good headspace and, and a positive mindset? And, and how much did your mum's passing give you the, the, not the motivation, but just sort of the mindset to say, well, if this doesn't work, who cares? You know what I mean? Just take the risk. For sure. I, I'm, I'm in a phenomenal mindset right now. I am very, very grateful for my headspace and where I'm at. I'm a big meditator. I've been... I think I meditate every single day for a year now without, uh, I missed a couple of days here and there, but pretty much every single day for over a year. Um, I haven't had a sip of alcohol for two years. I, I haven't partied in over a year. Um, I'm very, very focused on what I'm doing. Um, I am aware, you know, one thing that I struggled with with everything that had gone on was legitimately, like I said, two, I'd been playing the sport or practicing the sport for two months and cameras came. And then three months later, the season was over because the football season is so short. And then all of a sudden, I'm doing media, I'm getting scholarship offers, I'm doing things that I was not used to, things I wasn't really trained for, um, things that, you know, I was like, oh, you know, what, like, how am I in this position? Like five months ago, no one cared, you know, no one knew who I was. And all of a sudden, I'm doing you know, media and stuff. And what comes with media and, and, and putting things out there is I get phenomenal support, which is brilliant, but you also get the negative comments and you get the people who are jealous. Like I said about the fastest punter, copped a lot of, a lot of stuff about that, a lot of slack. And I got a lot of just, uh, just unnecessary stuff. Like, I, oh, you know, you can't just run. You've got to be able to punt too. You know, good luck. And just, just stuff that wasn't so nice. And, um, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was ready for that. You know, I, um, now I am, I've kind of gotten used to it, but at that time I, I didn't, it never really affected me too much, but it was just something I wasn't ready for. And now I've worked out that I have a really small circle of people. It's the people who have been there from the beginning, the people who have been there before my mum was sick, when my mum was sick and afterwards, um, there are people who, who were with me when I was playing basketball and saw me want to give up and stuck with me and were my best friends and didn't give up. You know, there are some people who come in and out of my life who only want to be there when things are good. And those people, their opinions don't matter as much. And people outside of my circle, their opinions now just have very little impact on me. And it's the people who are really in there, the people who are really close to me that I care about. And what they say to me is, is what drives me. And um, being there for them, whether I am successful or if I fail, I know that those same people in that circle will be there. And that gives me confidence every time I step on the field, every time I 
wake up in the morning that whether I succeed or fail today, that I will still have the exact same circle around me and the exact same support, people that I love. And the negative comments do not come through to me anymore. And I feel like through meditating, through journaling, through all the things that come with being in a good headspace, you know, I I gratitude journal every day. I I do affirmations every day. Um, There's a lot of things that I do. Go on walks. Like I could go on and on about, you know, I spend as much time working on my mental side every day as I do working on my physical side every day because I think it's so important. And, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in a great headspace. Um, I'm very happy with where I'm at. I'm very happy where football has taken me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that I'll be able to take the people who were with me from the beginning to the top. And if we don't get to the top, then I'll still be with me. And, and that's, that's so important to me. Um, I'm not sure if I answered all that question. But <laughs> no, that was... I feel like I was, feel like I was leaving something out. But... No, man, you're 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 a super nice kid. Uh, I obviously want to wish you all the success. I think you're on a great path, and I'm so happy to hear you're doing so well. Before you go, I do have one last question that has sort of been bugging me. These Americans think their sport's tough. They're all padded up, mate. Do you tell them that in Australia we tackle each other with no padding, or what do they think of that? Well, yeah, look, I was on the same wavelength as you. I, I came in there and I was all cocky and I had my uh, my shoulders up straight and I was <laughs> like, I, I don't wear pads and look at you blokes. And I thought I was some tough kid and I thought I was made of rocks. I was, I was so confident. I had no reason to be as confident as I did when I walked into that place trying to play running back. And I remember the first time I got out there on the training track, I, I ran through um, and I got clotheslined on my neck, and I got up and I went to go fight the bloke, right? And everyone just went on like it was normal, and I was like, "What the hell?" <laughs> and the thing is, in a, in American football, they are they're wearing pads, but they are you can hit them on the ankle, you can hit them on the knee, you can hit them in the neck, you can hit them on the head. Yeah, you can get hit wherever, and they are going a hundred miles per hour. And they're and bigger you're boys. Also, they're bigger and they're stronger and Mate, it, it is like the amount – I went in there a few times and just got cleaned up every single time. And um, it doesn't – I'll tell you what, it doesn't hurt as much when you get hit and you're, and you're wearing the pads. But that is a brutal sport, uh, especially when you're running and someone dives at your legs and smacks your knee. <laughs> it is the worst feeling in the world. But, um, look, they are, they are a lot tougher than you think. I, I have an incredible – respect for them after jumping in there and actually seeing what they did and um they are just as tough as us uh, afl boys for sure well let's hope you get those punts off pretty quick and you're not getting uh slammed anytime soon josh mate i want to thank you so much for sharing your story it's truly inspirational and uh wish you all the best for the upcoming seasons thank you it was a pleasure talking mate absolutely thanks for listening to the latest episode of life death and sport unlike sport in life there is no playbook And I want you to know that however you feel, it's okay. Thanks for listening to Life, Death and Sport. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss upcoming interviews and connect with Robbie Cornthwaite on social media. Links are in the show notes.